News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel in Brooklyn, here with Katie Honan in Queens, and Alex Lynn, who's now in Paris for a spell. Uh, we've got lots of news from this week to discuss before bringing in Elizabeth Glazer, who's now the founder and co-editor of the new publication, Vital City. To discuss this brand new publication and its first issue, which is all about gun violence in the city. Uh, but first, Alex, you're a lifelong New Yorker. You're off with, uh, with the new baby, a fairly new husband to Paris for a bit. And I'm just curious what perspective, if any, you have after a couple of weeks there on, on, on the city you just uh, ditched for a bit. Uh, well, it is it is weird to land in the city essentially the day or the day after Russia invaded uh, Ukraine um, because, you know, Paris, famous for uh, the Saturday protests, erupted into Saturday protests in support of Ukraine. Um, also, it, uh, it was also Fashion Week. So there was a very strange, very much like New York City, where you'll have like SantaCon plus, you know, protests. Uh, I remember the Eric Garner protests of 2014, juxtaposed with like SantaCon, um, a little classier here, <laughs> support of Ukraine protests juxtaposed with fancy, you know, Fashion Week. And, um, and there you have it. But I was surprised that there are a lot more actual um, homeless encampments than I've ever seen in Paris before. There's a few, I wouldn't say encampments like we're seeing uh, in around New York, but there are tents um, almost at every, every junction at this point in Paris. Somebody had told me Paris got a lot dirtier over COVID. Uh, I'm not sure if that's true. But I know that they have been suffering from slightly, not not the guns, but an uptick in crime as well. It's also French elections are coming up uh, at the end of Paris uh, Fashion Week. Macron announced his candidacy, his campaign. Um, so the city is kind of very much alive right now. One of the starkest examples, and we'll talk about this a little later when we talk about root causes, is... I don't know if a lot of people know this, but during my pregnancy, I was looking for some mental health help, uh, you know, just for pregnant women and new mothers. Any mother who whose family has a history of mental illness or especially during COVID feeling isolated, uh, they were encouraged to go seek out you know, mental health help, even with insurance. This was almost impossible in New York in the midst of like a mental health crisis where you know, every new number that the mayor came up with just rerouted you back to 311 to ask for if you're in crisis immediately and you need to go to a psych ward or a hospital or something, which was not the case, obviously. Um, and it was def really difficult to get any kind of help at all. Um, and I come to Paris, I'm a little lonely new baby. And I just look up online these PMI centers, which are professionals for the protection of mothers and infants. Um, translate that with the French accent. But they're just these centers everywhere. And you can walk in and you're like, I have a baby. And they're saying, oh, here's some playgroups. Here's this. Come in for free. You need to talk to a psychiatrist. You need to talk to a doctor. No problem. 
Uh, we'll give you an appointment. It's totally free. You don't have your insurance. Uh, you're from another country. Absolutely no problem. You have a baby. You're a mother. Come sit down. It's not exactly have a cup of tea, but let your baby play with our clean toys and take a breath if you need one. And to me, that was just radical coming from New York where you see such a lack of those kind of simple solution solutions and resources. Um, and that's, by the way, in every neighborhood, not just the rich ones in Paris. That, that is uh, very much a contrast to how a lot of these services are here, despite how they're presented, you know, on the subway ads, uh, you know, just call. Um, Katie, there, there's a ton going on. I know you're in the middle of reporting some of it. So, so let's just start with the, uh, with the city. Um, Eric Adams is still sort of staffing up his administration. Mm -hmm. There's a bunch of people who have been on hold, but are sort of widely expected. And then, then that seems to be happening in bursts. Uh, the mayor was in Miami yesterday mm -hmm. talking about cryptocurrency. He's back in the city <laughs> today. Um, uh, hollering about a uh, civilians crowding cops while taking <laughs> videos of them making arrests and he's sending uh, police chiefs out in pairs to patrol the subway. Uh, you know, it, it, it's very early in Adam's term, but we're still doing some of the, uh, transition stuff. He seems like he's going full speed plus on a bunch of other things like, like how's he doing? What are you seeing? Uh, uh, um, you know, as, as they said about Katja, how am I doing? How am I doing? Well, you also, you forgot to mention that, um, he's now the most hated man in Nets basketball fandom because <laughs> of the mandate that's preventing Kyrie Irving from playing at home. And, um, and the Yankees and the Mets waiting to find out too. Clearly Aaron judge. What is, is not the vaccinated. mandate? It's a, you have to be vaccinated to work at your place of business for, you know, for, um, a sanitation worker. It's in the garage and on the truck, right? That's the public employee mandate for the private employee mandate. If it's, you work at JP Morgan or, or something like that, but for Kyrie Irving, it's clearly at the basketball court at Barclays center. So we can play away games. He scored something like 59 points, uh, 60, 60, sorry, at away. I don't follow the NBA, but yeah, so that came up today. I, you know, the mayor was at the police Academy in college point talking about his new um, street crimes unit, uh, neighborhood precision cops, the name for it um the anti-crime anti unit that now has yeah. to wear uniforms that used to wear street clothes exactly the anti-crime with the nypd half zip instead um and i'm you know I'm, i don't mean to diminish the, the overall goal of it which is incredibly important which is to gut guns off the street and they identified um 30 precincts and four psas that are i think the statistic was it, it is 80 percent of the gun crimes across the city are, are confined within these areas so um there's Cops assigned to each one, they, the police said, and then the mayor said that they were vetted. They looked at their background. Not everyone who applied got in to make sure that they had not just the background and the skills, but the emotional intelligence to kind of deal with this. So we got a, a primer on that today at the police academy. And, and the mayor was asked about this mandate. I think I'd heard some people say, well, you know, baseball, you play it outside. It's not like the Astrodome or something where <laughs> it's covered. So what does that mean for baseball players? Uh, Aaron Judge was asked about it this week. He's a Yankees player and he, yeah, I, I joked on Twitter that he answered it like a politician, where he didn't answer if he was vaccinated or not. So this, I, I believe, is coming up. Um, the mayor said something very vague, as he often does, where he says there's time to work it out. I think a lot of fans interpreted that as 
oh, so you're going to get rid of the mandate for baseball, but the rest of us, you know, the Nets are doing really well this year and our star player can't play at home. Yeah, there's a lot going on. And I do think it's still too early to say, to say, oh, you know, the mayor's doing a great job overall or a horrible job overall. I think in certain initiatives, he has, um, like he campaigned, he campaigned on public safety and his actions have shown that he's keeping those campaign promises in pushing for that. You know, we had high, very high profile uh, violent incidents over the weekend. Um, the man who was targeting homeless and unhoused individuals, both in D.C. and here, arrested in D.C. You had the man who freaked out and stabbed two employees at MoMA for not letting him in. Um, you know, how do you kind of prevent that kind of crime? But I think what he's looking at are the known individuals, at least known to the police, who are known to have guns and continue to create violence in the city in, in very targeted pockets of the city. So in that regard, that's what he campaigned on. And that's what he's promising. Weirdly, it's not it, uh, a lot of the headlines um, are about shootings, but they are also about a lot of non gun related crimes. Yeah. Uh, the the gentleman in Yonkers uh, who who hit an older Asian woman 125 or 127 times in the head um, after following her into the building. That was also in the past couple of days. Um, even though that's not city territory, uh, it's close enough. Yeah, I mean, it, there have been troubling, really high profile hate crimes across the city that um, it, it is... You know, is it the media perpetuating a myth about high crime or are we not supposed to report on really violent and disturbing incidents? Um, you know, it's a circular way of thinking, I, I find, where some people are like, no, you shouldn't. You didn't perhaps get a peek at the emotional intelligence test um, that they gave to NYPD. Did you? Did they hand it out? Like, is no. it? You know, no. I mean, I don't even know the process. Still, I'm joking, obviously. No, but I, I know that, <laughs> look, I know people who, friends of mine who've gone on the police academy, it is, you know, they they do your full vet when you're getting in and, and you know, they do like a psychic eval and, and all that kind of stuff. And I don't know, they didn't really get into too much detail. I mean, they did say what they really were looking at um, prior incidents, any incidents of force, any any confirmed incidents of force, any CCRB complaints, um, even back to when they first applied to be a police officer. What Did they perhaps note anything that they think would make them qualified? I will say they had a few of the officers at the police academy look like they were all at the 7-5 precinct in Brooklyn. Um, they look young. I, you know, I can't always judge how, how old people are, but um, it didn't, it seemed like younger police officers. And um, so who knows how long they've been on, but this is, as the mayor noted, it is one of the more violent um, units for police officers. And obviously we know the well-documented incidents of violence against, um, from the police on behalf of civilians from the former anti-crime unit. But it, as he noted, it can also be violent for, you know, you're in the front lines trying to get shooters and trying to get guns off the street. And, and that is not easy. So back, back to the VAX mandate really quick. This was something de Blasio set up just mm -hmm. before leaving office and Adams held with, and it meant that a, a relative handful of workers in this giant workforce lost their jobs because they would not get vaccinated. And, and sort of the backdrop I think is if Adams changes things in any way now, that seems like it's about, uh, you know, basketball stars or baseball stars, uh, at all that the, 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 there's a lot of lawsuit potential yeah there and 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 tabloid potential with, with these gun units right like bill braddon and i'll do a, an eye roll for chrissy greer who's not here this week 
And, and for the uh, listeners, he's rolling his eyes. <laughs> he's not a fan. Um, his argument always was that the original sin was overexpanding the gun units that he'd established. The gun unit is always getting established, reestablished, rebranded, uh, nominally disbanded while other cops keep looking for guns. This is happening again now. But then he'd established like uh, an elite one with very competent cops. He didn't talk about emotional intelligence, but uh, you can sort of see the parallel idea and that it had tremendous success. And then Giuliani just sort of kept pressing the button under subsequent commissioners, expanding it and uh, all sorts of, uh, of, of terrible incidents followed as it expanded, uh, culminating, if you will, in, uh, in, in, in the uh, 41 shots. Um, that, that were fired at uh, Amadou Diallo and Adams, who it's not a Rudy fan, uh, but uh, has talked with Braddon, I, I think is trying to get back to that model. Um, I've heard on background that they're expecting this to take about two months to start showing results, which would have him, you know, going on five months in. And, you know, I'm sure he'd love to just have a, a, a week or two without crimes, shootings, EDPs, whatever else dominating the front pages in the meantime. Uh, Katie, real quick, and we're going to let you get back to reporting and just jumping from, from all this, which we'll get back to with Liz Glazer, mm -hmm. to the state. Uh, Governor Hochul's at the Javits Center today, uh, signing a bill about, uh, signing several bills about helping victims of harassment and making sure government employees are fully protected. Yeah, Andrew Cuomo's in the Bronx tomorrow, oh. talking about how he's on St. Patty's Day, too, of all days. Uh, <laughs> Luckily, Irish. Well, not, not him. But. And, and Lee Zeldin, who's the likely Republican nominee, mm -hmm. is putting out internal polling. And, you know, what else are they going to show? But saying he can beat Hochul in November, uh, which would be the first time in a long time we'd have a Republican win a statewide election. But on the premise that, that um, with Trump gone, people in the city are going to vote less. People in the rest of the state are going to vote more. And that this red wave that washed out some Democrats were not expecting to be washed out last year is going to continue rising. Like, how's all that playing out is like we're, we're racing toward the, uh, you know, the June primary and then the election. I don't I mean, there's a, just a lot going on in terms of that. And I think um, I've looking at the recent poll numbers. I don't know. Um, I mean, Andrew Cuomo was doing pretty well in the most recent poll numbers. I can't think off the top mm -hmm. of my head, but it, it was it he was four points behind. Exactly. And he has the money to spend. He has people supporting him. I mean, in terms of Kathy Hochul's support, um, she seems to have a lot of the institutional support that would have usually had gone to Andrew Cuomo um, on the ground support. I mean, she is not she's not as obviously as far left as Jemani Williams. And I think that's the most of the city. Most of the state is is more moderate. Um but uh, yeah, there is just a lot going on in this, and, and it is sort of a race to that primary and figuring out where does someone like Andrew Cuomo fit into it. Um, he is doing his comeback tour, right? In, in the I think it was Errol Lewis who said that, you know, for a lot of politicians, they they find the warmth of a church to make their comeback, a church that they wouldn't usually go to for Sunday services. That is where they're going for their comeback. Um, and yeah, I I do think the, the Republicans in particular will maybe do even better than a lot of people think because it's again sort of this. Even though there is that far left shift, there is also people's reactions to it. Um, I think you might even find some people who are who would have normally said that they were more liberal, um, upset about mandates, just sick of what they find to be really restrictive policies around COVID. Um, 
I've seen it from people who are, you know, they want their kids unmasked, their kids under five to not wear masks anymore. That hasn't happened yet. And, and, and it's really kind of uh, radicalized them and maybe in, in, in a way opposite to what they usually have been in. So that seems like a, a perfect note to jump into this conversation with Liz Glazer, which has a lot to do with um, the forces on the left and then the uh, the snapback uh, to the center that they can at times generate and perhaps are right now in New York. So let's jump right in. Hi, Liz. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. To start here, do you just want to tell our listeners a bit about a uh, your own career and uh, progression as a prosecutor moving toward and then away from, as you write in this first issue of uh, Vital City, uh, abolitionism as a goal, and uh, then maybe fill them in on Vital City and what you're doing now. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. And I'd love to also uh, say a bit about my co-editor, Greg Berman, um, because we come to this from different paths. But I think uh, you can either view us as cliches, the arc of our careers, or uh, as really kind of revealing something interesting about the moment that we're at. Um, so my own career is, um, uh, I, I actually came to the law quite late. Um, I worked in refugee camps in uh, Cambodia and Vietnam, thought that's what I would do. Uh, I ended up going to law school um, and ended up actually in the U.S. Attorney's Office um, in New York in the Southern District, um, where uh, at, at a time when murders had reached their peak, this was in the early 1990s, um, and I became very, very interested in um, the the issue of violence and uh, what the role of the feds should be. And we did a ton of work with the police department and with local neighborhoods um, about the violence. Uh, and then following that, um, I, I worked for the city for a bunch of years. I worked for Cuomo when he was attorney general and then became um, his criminal justice person overseeing the eight uh, state agencies, so that's corrections and state police and homeland. Um, uh, and then when de Blasio was elected mayor, I uh, came and uh, started working there and worked with him for uh, about six to seven of the years that he was mayor. Um, and so the relevance of any of that <laughs> to this current venture is uh, I'm somebody who is pretty deeply committed to the role of the police and the criminal justice system and believed in that power to be able to keep us safe. Um, but the arc of the last 20 years has also been very, very stark uh, and uh, troubling understates it. Uh, how devastating and eviscerating the role of incarceration has been um, to civic life, to familial life. Um, and we've also learned a ton over the last 20 years of all the things outside of force and outside of the criminal justice system that keep us safe and that more than keeping us safe after the fact, build productive lives and strong neighborhoods. And so things like 
lighting public places, uh, providing summer jobs. There is the best evidence on the face of the planet supporting that it's not just that that's a prevention effort in the future, that you turn on the lights and crime goes down right then. And so I came very much to a belief that uh, police and the criminal justice system are important, um, but they are just one strand. They are just one civic service, and they should be treated as a civic and civil service um, and overseen and integrated into a civilian approach to safety. And my colleague, Greg Berman, um, and um, I'm sorry that I am taking all the space on my history because his is incredibly interesting and important. Um, he was one of the co-founders of the Center for Court Innovation, which is an important nonprofit in New York City um, that started off really pioneering uh, the use of neighborhood uh, courts um, to address problems. He then was the leader of that organization for 20 years and really on the front edge of figuring out uh, how nonprofits could help reduce crime and increase safety in neighborhoods and support uh, neighborhood groups and organizations. So that's our history. <laughs> and, and so you're coming in as, as a prosecutor, he's coming in as a, as, as a reformer. And, you know, the two of you have now found this this common middle ground uh, the vital city the first issue is all about gun violence is exploring um what what makes this an opportune moment for 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 this sort of publication and and and, and how do you see this arc over the last say three years where mm -hmm. we've had significant criminal justice reforms in new york um at the same time uh, violent crime rates have, have, have now been going significantly up and continuing to in the last couple of months. Uh, and at the same time, we've had uh, this pandemic that, that in a lot of ways has shaken things up so that old numbers simply d don't quite apply. Like, like, yeah. uh, and this is true for crime, education, almost everything else. Like, like we're all working yeah. out what the baseline should be and where we have a new mayor who says he's the face of the Democratic Party who seems to want to re revive what critics have called the neoliberal consensus of the uh, 1990s. And Joe Biden was a big part of this. And like, we're going to have nighttime basketball and we're going to pay for a lot more cops. And that's the deal, folks. And also his new commissioner primarily blaming some of our bail reform laws for numbers mm -hmm. that the entire country is experiencing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. since the pandemic started. So yes. how do you see this moment? So... A gazillion things to answer there, but um, I mean, I would say just sort of going back to the space that Vital City hopes to occupy, um, that it, both Greg and I sort of think, and I think given the response that we've had, at least in these early days, I think a lot of people feel this, that we have locked ourselves into a kind of political stalemate um, where a, really a kind of gridlock where on the one side you have people and, and I'm going to make this a little sharper than it is, but, you know, on the one hand, you have people who believe in the power of the police and the criminal justice system to keep us safe. And really that's the first and sometimes the only approach that they're going to take. 
And even, and maybe we'll come back and talk about this, even Adams, who I think really is trying and expresses his support for a balanced uh, approach, when push comes to shove, the most demonstrable evidence of what he's doing has been the police and deploying police and police power. So on the one hand, you have that. And on the other, you have people, you know, um, activists, uh, electeds, many others uh, who see really kind of the deep damage that the default to police and incarceration um, have uh, have inflicted, you know, and there's this, you know, just one fact that I think stands in for so much. Um, the sociologist Bruce Western has looked at New York City itself and looked at the poorest zip codes, which are all also communities of color. And Black men in those poor zip codes, one in three, will see the inside of a jail or prison cell by the time they're 38. Uh, you know, how, how, how do we move forward with that kind of fact? So I think, you know, just as you said, the pandemic has distilled everything and um, that polarization between these two views, I think, have really uh, hardened in the pandemic, partly because after experiencing three years of the lowest crime and incarceration rates the city has ever seen, right, from 2017 to 2019, it had never been lower, both at the same time. Um, sort of a few months into the pandemic, New York City, like every city across the nation, suddenly saw this sharp rise in shootings and strangely really kind of cabined to violence. Um, and what is really troubling about it is that um, shootings doubled in New York City uh, from 2019 to 2020. They've essentially stayed there. Um, and so what's the way forward? You know, and I think, as you've mentioned, there's a lot of, you know, name calling and sort of racing to facts. And we're hoping to shine a light on some facts um, and offer some solutions uh, that we think could move us forward. So uh, Eric Gonzalez co-wrote one of the, the essays in this issue, uh, Cy Vance, uh, the former Manhattan district attorney, Mm-hmm. Is is on the uh, is on the uh, board of advisors for for, for this issue. Uh, they would both categorize themselves, at least, as uh, progressive prosecutors. Uh, some people disagreed with Vance, and that was sort of the backdrop to the election to replace him when he decided not to run again. But I'm I'm curious who who you see Vital City as speaking to, and who you see it as uh, speaking for. Well, it's a great question. And, you know, I sometimes joke that in New York City, we run the gamut of opinion from A to B, you know, so, (laughs) um, but in that gamut, uh, the response, at least so far, has been um, really across the board from those who tip more to the abolition uh, approach to those who you know, believe deeply in the role of police to uh, to make us safe. Um, and we're hoping to appeal to decision makers, um, to decision makers in the first instance who have the levers of power to do some different things. Um, but really, uh, in some ways, this is a campaign for an idea 
um, and we hope to reach all New Yorkers and get into the drinking water, this notion that um, police absolutely are an important way that we are safe, but they are not the only way, and that we have learned to our peril what happens when we rely singly and solely on them. And it's unfair not just to New Yorkers, it's unfair to the police who are now called upon to solve really every problem um, that appears. Uh, so uh, uh, I have a little bit more to say about that, but I, I don't want to uh, monopolize. I, I actually would jump in right there because a lot of what I have observed over the past couple of years is this ping pong back and forth of abdication of responsibility for, for instance, crimes with uh, emotionally disturbed persons. Mm -hmm. How at first, you know, you, you heard a lot of talk from the NYPD about how they should not be held accountable for being medical professionals or medical first responders. And they are not that they are not trained as such. They're not, you know, they're not paramedics, they're not EMTs. And then when the question of uh, monetary allotment comes into play for mm -hmm. dividing what resources could go to you know, a new unit, which was oddly disbanded, uh, the mm -hmm. EDP unit, was a, or uh, funds that would be reallocated um, for social work or, or different kinds of preventative measures for mentally ill people being on the street. All of a sudden, there's a ton of pushback, and this should be the police's responsibility, and there it is a safety issue, especially if mentally ill become violent, et cetera, et cetera. So I definitely have seen that ping-ponging of responsibility in the conversation. And that's one of the things I, I kind of wanted to ask you about. Like, this conversation has become so dense um, and and almost off of jumping points that are are not true, like, are, are either not true or are just misrepresentations of what they're talking about. So we have, you know widow like a very young widow of a slain police officer earlier this mm -hmm. year um you know call out our very new district attorney alvin bragg mm -hmm. for his policies that ha weren't weren't even implemented at the time um you have just days ago the new police commissioner saying that bail reform it has to be revised, um, taking like a huge stand on bail reform. In 2019, you have all these Albany, um, this, this new set in Albany, the new blue wave, the progressives coming in, and they basically, you know, bail reform was a huge win, right? It no longer could you just indefinitely incarcerate someone under, you know, their waiting of a speedy trial. Like you had to prove that there was some reason to hold them and most of the time they could not. So the question is these conversations have, whether it's defund refund or whether it's whose responsibility and who's to blame, is it bail reform or is it COVID? How does vital city and how do you find yourself situated inside this conversation without selling out to either side for lack of a better term? Because there's so many voices and there's so much political cachet at stake for everybody contributing. Like, how, how do you find the truth here? Sorry for that yeah. really long wind up. 
No, it's a great 600 questions. <laughs> um, so it, thank you. Um, so I would say that what Vital City is trying to do is cut the Gordian knot. We don't want to be on one side or on the other side because we don't actually think that fairly describes how we get to safety. So right now, really the only way we think about getting to safety is more police, less police, police doing more, police doing less, the criminal justice system, does the do the laws in the criminal justice system describe the behavior that we want to proscribe, doesn't it? And so in a world in which we have, let's just look at it in budget terms, we have $100 billion that the city spends every year for the safety and well-being of its residents. 14% of that is spent on the criminal justice agencies, $14 billion. Now, we can argue a about whether that's too much or too little or whatever. But the thing that we are missing is that we're only using 14% of our tools to make ourselves safe. And so the argument is caught up in the snarl over in the lower left-hand corner, right-hand corner, whichever corner you want it to be in, but in a tiny part of the picture when there is 85% of other things um, that not only make us safe, uh, but create the kind of city life that every person wants. And this isn't just sort of some gushy root causes argument. We actually have incredibly good evidence about the series of things that make us safe, both right now, I already mentioned lighting and employment um, in particular kinds of ways. We have about 30 other of these things that random controlled trials have shown work in our current issue. Um, but we don't use them. We, we just don't. We don't use them in any coordinated and targeted way. So Adams, to his credit, is amping up summer youth employment. Um, and he announced that he's going to restart that $417 million that, you know, needs to be invested to make parks uh, usable. Uh, parks are an incredibly important part of civic life and knitting together, you know, how people relate to one another. But what is not happening, um, and this is where I think he has an enormous opportunity that both fits with his story and his, you know, ambition but also is a way forward that sort of walks through the raindrops of what you've just described, which is he has the opportunity to say, I'm not just going to make this a pile of programs where we have, you know, a dash of summer youth employment and a bit of, you know, capital investment. And oh, by the way, Kachung, a lot of cops. Um, I'm going to actually knit these all together in a very significant um, and targeted way. I'm going to look specifically at those 10 neighborhoods which have led the city for the last 30 years that we know of, and probably before that in shootings. There's a remarkable chart in, in, in the uh, in this 
issue of Vital Cities showing this that that, that really caught my attention. There's a lot of terrific charts, but this is the uh, you know the precincts where where the most shootings are happening, and you you see almost no change over 30 years in which precincts you're looking at and, and in their share of overall uh, shootings in the city at about 40 percent. So for everything that changed, that stayed very much the same. And I would love to say that the the data graphics in, in Vital City were are really incredible. And some of the ways in which you uh, have hired data journalists to express some of these numbers uh, was incredibly impressive. Yeah, I really would like to shout out um, uh, Design for Progress, who are are who are the designers of the website and such an important part of trying to, you know, change the drinking water is what people can see and have what access they have to information. Um, but that's really important. But I mean, Harry, to your point, and, and to the point I'm sort of trying to, to make, which is it's not just about police. It's not just that those 10 neighborhoods have led the city for decades in shootings, but I can show you every map of distress you know, high asthma, high infant mortality, uh, low birth rate, low educational achievement, high unemployment, physical, you know, dilapidation, everything. And it's all in those neighborhoods. And it's it's not an accident. Um, you know, we talk a lot about, um, you know, disinvestment and segregation, but and those terms almost disappear. But these are living, breathing issues that actually a little focus and attention uh, could move the needle an enormous distance because we have money and we spend that money, but we don't spend it in a force multiplying way. I had a quick question because you did say uh, a tough phrase. You said like gushy root cause uh, discussions or arguments. Um, and that to me is really interesting because not a lot of people, it's easy to dismiss when somebody says root causes because it sounds like it's going to take a long time. And I know that you wrote a lot about that in some of your writers, uh, Ted Alcorn, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, yeah. um, wrote about that as well in the first issue. So when talking about root causes and how they can actually help and this incredible tangle that you also referenced, uh, how to untangle that, how to make all these different government entities in the city work in tandem how do you express that when you're saying not saying root cause but what do you say to police to people on the other side of the issue that are just like we got to get them uh, off the streets whoever the them is you know whether yeah. they're children yeah. or mentally ill or what have you and to eric adams who just wants the shit off the front pages right now um, right, yeah. and, and is very interested in broader solutions and going upstream, but 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 yeah, you know yeah. wants to buy space to get there. Totally. Um, so I I think it's a huge issue, and I think leadership makes a real difference, and I think language makes a real difference. You know, I think there is something just satisfying, even if it erroneously satisfying, to saying there's crime, arrest the guy, put him in jail. Well, why is that erroneously satisfying? Because yes, people who shoot people should be <laughs> go to jail, or at least that's my view. But um, but it's after the fact; it hasn't stopped the shooting. It hasn't, and so there's plenty more we can do. But to say 
we'll get everybody a job and turn on the lights and do it. That doesn't have the same resonance and it doesn't have the same history. We're not used reflexively to saying, oh, there's a problem. Um, let's do something else. Like, is the answer to shoplifting arresting those guys over and over and over and over again? They spend a night in the lockup and then they're sent on their way, or maybe they spend 30 days and then. So each of these problems has to, we have to understand what is the behavior that's trying to be changed and what's the best way to change that behavior? Is it by force or is it by something else? Um, and so to your question, which is absolutely the question, how do we make it as attractive, as tangible, um, uh, as deployable? How do you sell it? How do you sell it? I think one way you sell it is, you know, you have to salute Eric Adams for the energy uh, of the first couple of months. Uh, for the fact that he is everywhere for really sort of tremendous charisma across the board and with a way with words, no question. Um, and he has another power, which is he actually did appoint a deputy mayor for public safety, who at least in, in my dreams <laughs> would be the person who not only um, hot wires together the criminal justice system, which is not really a system, but everybody reports to a different boss, but coordinates that. But crucially, is the bridge to his other deputy mayors and to all the other resources that the city brings to reduce crime, like summer youth employment and parks and all those other things. So if they're going to do them, what's actually the plan to put it together and to um, to hold everyone's feet to the fire to make sure day by day, week by week, month by month, you're hitting whatever the goals are that you set. Um, and, and that's where I think he has an enormous opportunity. Uh, and I hope he takes it. That deputy mayor of public safety should come out swinging like a rock star with a yes. campaign. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. It's it's a little tricky because he brought in somebody to do this who he's very close with, who had significant uh, perception issues, we'll say, as, as he was investigated for his ties to guys who were bribing the last mayor. This is Philip Banks. I've written a bunch about him, but it's complicated now in that it's hard to track what he's doing behind the scenes or, or what his influence is, and it may be significant. Um, interestingly, all the chiefs just got told that they're going to be patrolling the subway in Paris, which I suspect might have come from from, from Philip Banks and, and is is an interesting move and, and certainly like a, a screw you sort of nudge to the uh, to the brass and probably to people he might like to move on. Uh, because I, I'm sure that guys who are used to dressing in very nice white uniforms and, and so forth are not itching to uh, be patrolling the trains at night. Um, but as we're running short on time here, I have two sweeping closing questions of hoping you can give terribly <laughs> compressed answers to. So the first is in terms of, of, of selling something and, and, and selling something to this mayor who has a, a great deal of influence right now and to lawmakers and others. I, I love your perspective on how Vital City compares to, uh, to an earlier publication, City Journal, that had a, a great deal of sway when, uh, when Giuliani became mayor. And uh, that uh, uh, your father, the um, 
the, the great sociologist Nathan Glazer wrote for, and, and my father, the uh, sometimes great historian Fred Siegel edited, uh, but but that, that that had sort of a significant sway, continues to uh, to be out there now, and, and and how you see personally and practically Vital City matching or differing from that formula, and then one more after that. So uh, I think we are, are are united in our love for New York City and wanting to re- find solutions. I, I think we're different uh, in that, and it's a different time right now, um, that we are really deeply committed to finding the best ideas wherever they may be across the political spectrum, whether from academia, the neighborhood, or government, and then mapping them onto the mechanics of how you run a city, budget, uh, operations, crucially. Uh, And so I think we view ourselves as very practical and hopefully uh, to try and find the evidence first and the narrative later. Closing question here. Um, I I touched on this earlier, um, and you mentioned in in this introductory essay uh, about the paths that you and uh, Berman took and, and sort of coming together here. But talk just a little about uh, about how you moved toward and when and how you then moved away from abolitionism as, as the answer into what I at least would call a, a small p progressive or reform oriented mode. Um, hmm. uh, so, you know, when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, I headed up the organized crime section. Uh, we uh, really were the first federal prosecutors in the country to use racketeering uh, in a very uh, significant way against local street gangs. Uh, And a lot of people went away for very, very long periods of time. And subsequently in my career, um, I, through a whole array of people who I met, um, both people incarcerated, formerly incarcerated, activists and others, a whole group uh, that actually were, uh, you know, also uh, I became part of something called Square One, uh, which brought these voices together. It was just devastating to see uh, how simply relying on arrest and incarceration uh, had really undermined the very foundations of what makes a democracy uh, great. And uh, it just seemed that a more parsimonious use of criminal justice uh, was absolutely called for, but that really the question was compared to what? Compared to what? And, uh, And there's such powerful evidence And just as a human matter, the notion that you would invest in building people and neighborhoods uh, instead of simply punishment uh, seemed uh, obvious. Elizabeth Glazer, thank you again for joining us. Uh, The publication is Vital City. I'm told that it will be in print, but right now you can find it online at vitalcitynyc.com. It occurs to me that we could have done 
a whole episode that actually covers all these issues about the uh, drill rapper Sibu, who was arrested while carrying a gun, shot himself and a cop in the course of that. Um, Eric Adams says this is proof of why we need bail reform, even though bail reform was not relevant to why he was out on a previous gun arrest. Uh, the judge in the case uh, has now hit both the NYPD for arresting this, you know, known gun carrier in the first place without uh, without any credible reason for doing so, and the DA's office for saying that that he's in a gang just because his uh, videos and his social media presence are all. Not in a you, you need to spy or have the gang unit doing this, which they do way, but in a direct, I'm just saying it way in a gang. Um, and, and and to me, it's just uh, become the most fascinating single case for this. But but that, that'll be maybe for next time. Um, thank you again for coming on. And, and please, let's talk again soon. That would be great. Thank you so much for having me. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of independent journalists, critics, and artists. Find us online at thebrick.house. We are headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research, and recorded today from Brooklyn, Queens, and Paris, France. A special thank you to guest Elizabeth Glazer of Vital City. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn, and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. As always, be cool, be kind, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>